This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. The Greenbrier is a character. I was going to say that exact thing. I was going to stop you and say the Greenbrier is really a character in this book. It really is. And it's really cool to have that yeah. dynamic because even when you know we're, when you play with history too, and I know Christy, you and I, I'm sure we have so many similarities as far as how we stay true to history or kind of our rules with that. But it made it tricky a little bit because I had to stay true to some history with Dorothy, Dorothy's life in some parts of the book and really stick to that and then stay true to the Greenbrier history and other parts of the book. And it was an interesting and fun balancing act to try to find, find the story and stay true to fact also. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. I am Ron Block, and today I am joined by none other than Christy Woodson Harvey. Hello, Christy. Hi, Ron. I'm so glad to, to get to hear your voice and see your face for a little bit. I miss you already. I know. We just saw each other the other day, but I, I do. I miss you all the time. Well, one of the great pleasures of historical fiction is reading about little known or forgotten people who get a second chance at fame and recognition by the pen of a talented storyteller. So today we are so thrilled to welcome Joy Calloway, someone who does just that in bringing these little known or forgotten people back to life. She is the author of The Grand Design. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. Totally, totally. Congratulations on the book. Let me just tell people a little bit about you and we will dive right in. So Joy's love of storytelling is a direct result of her parents' insistence that she read books or write stories instead of watching TV. Mm, I don't know about that, but we'll talk about it. Her, her interest in family history was fostered by her relative's habit of recounting tales of ancestors' lives. Joy is a full-time mom and writer. 
She formerly served as a marketing director for a wealth management company. She holds a BA in journalism and public relations from Marshall University and an MMC in mass communication from the University of South Carolina. She resides in Charlotte, North Carolina with her husband and her two children. So once again, Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to have you I'm here. So I know we've tried to, we've been trying to talk to you for a little while. We finally got it all together. So I'm very excited. I know the stars have aligned. <laughs> Right, right. So the book Grand Design is is out on May 17th. And I think this will air a little bit after that. But congratulations on that book. But tell everybody a little bit about what the book is. So the book is very special to me because what a lot of people, I guess, have would know if they followed me is how much I love the state of West Virginia. It's something that it's a it's kind of my second home. My family's from there. My husband's from there. And when you are familiar with West Virginia, one of the one of the kind of stars of West Virginia is the Greenbrier. And you know, growing up, we were there all the time. And when you're in the Greenbrier, you're surrounded by these remarkable, colorful designs. And those designs were created by a woman named Dorothy Draper, who was an iron heiress of the Gilded Age, who kind of went from you know, society darling to CEO and made a really big shift, you know, back, you know, nowadays there's all kinds of celebrities who are also entrepreneurs, but back then, you know, you were, if you were in society, it was completely unthinkable that you would become a businesswoman. And so I wanted to explore in this book, what happened to kind of push her toward who she became, which was really the Martha Stewart of her time in the 1940s. So the book takes place in 1908 and 1946, both at the Greenbrier. And in both time periods, we followed Dorothy Draper. And the book is about the Greenbrier and how a love she found there as a young woman sort of influenced that shift from socialite to CEO. Mm. I love this book, as you know, and I remember having lunch with you a few years ago and you were just absolutely lit up about the idea of writing this book about Dorothy Draper, who, you know, is one of America's most notable interior designers. And, you know, I was so excited, too, because I'm a big fan of hers and also love design. So can you just take us back to like just the origins of this idea? Like where what was the spark and what was the moment that made you say, OK, I'm going to write this? Well, book? Christy, I feel like we're probably a lot of like in this, you know, everywhere we go, we're looking for, whether we are conscious of it or not, we're looking for ideas. You know, we're nerdy like that, which is so much fun, but you know, for sure. We so are. Everything becomes a story, right? Everything does. Everything has the potential to, and you know, especially places we love. And so, you know, as I mentioned, basically partially growing up in West Virginia, we had gone to the Greenbrier with my family since before I can remember. And actually, generations back. I mean, my family has been in the area for eight generations. And so they've gone to the Greenbrier for, I don't even know how many, I mean, probably that, that many generations because the Greenbrier has been around since the early 1800s. And so, um, you know, it's a really special place for us. And on one of our many reunions there, uh, I was sitting in the main lobby and I was talking to my grandpa and I was talking about how I, really wanted to write a book set at the Greenbrier because it was such a special place for us. And I always attended the the history lectures. Whenever I was there, they have a, a staff historian. Um, he just retired actually this year. He'd been there for 45 years. And he's just this wealth of knowledge. And 
the hard part was for me is I knew I wanted to write a book set there, but the history is so deep and so vast there that, and there are so many stories you could tell that I, on that particular year, on that reunion, I was trying to figure out in conversation with my grandpa, like, you know, which story do I tell? And as I was sitting there uh, amid all these beautiful designs and that's the designs are part of the atmosphere at the Greenbrier. You can't really separate the designs from the hotel. They just wouldn't be the same. And I was actually talking to my grandpa about that exact same thing that just, you know, the green, like Dorothy Draper and the Greenbrier are basically just, they've merged. Their legacies have merged. You can't separate them. You can't, you can't take, you know, in a lot of ways, the Greenbrier by, um, with Carlton Varney, you know, carrying on her designs and the Greenbrier can, continuing to have her designs displayed, they made her immortal. And in a lot of ways too, Dorothy Draper, when she came to the Greenbrier to revitalize it in the 1940s, after it had been uh, an army hospital, she gave the Greenbrier new life. She elevated it to the, to what it is today. And so you can't separate those two entities. And so I think when I figured that out and when that dawned on me sitting there with my grandpa, he was a great guy to like talk talk things through with, um, it just became so clear that I needed to tell their story, the Greenbrier and Dorothy Draper's story. And in so many ways in this book, the Greenbrier is a character. Yeah. I was going to say that exact thing. I was going to stop you and say the Greenbrier is really a character in this book. It really is. And it's really cool to have that yeah. dynamic because even when, you know, we're, when you play with history too, and I know Christy, you and I, I'm sure we have so many similarities as far as how we stay true to history or kind of our rules with that. But it made it tricky a little bit because I had to stay true to his, some history with Dorothy, Dorothy's life in some parts of the book and really stick to that and then stay true to the Greenbrier's history in other parts of the book. And it was an interesting and fun balancing act to try to find, find the story and stay true to fact also, while also playing, having the ability to play with a little bit of fiction too. So, yeah, but just sitting there, I, I will always treasure that that time with my grandpa. Um, the cool thing is, you know, I write a lot about there's always a little hint of family history in all of my books. It just makes it a lot more real to me. Um, my grandpa, actually, his dad um, was a ribbon mill manager and they he started out in Kannapolis, North Carolina and hopped around. You know, he'd get promoted and go to different mills and when my grandpa was actually in college, he's the oldest of, of five kids. When he was in college at Duke, his parents had actually moved to White Sulphur Springs, which is the town that the Greenbrier's in. And his dad was managing a ribbon mill there. And so during the summers, my grandpa would come home from Duke and, and live there. And one summer he came home and they asked him, they said, you know, this woman's redecorating the hotel. We need you to come in and help install a new fire alarm system in the hotel. And so he came in and she was decorating and he was installing the fire alarm system. And so it's such a cool, what talking to him was so neat because he was able to remember those times and what it meant to the community to have her revitalize it, but also how he was a small part of, you know, helping it get back on it, the hotel, get back on its feet in a lot of ways. That is so cool. It is. And it's like the personal touches really make a story, you know, it makes you care that much more about, about the story. And I hope it translates into that, you know, for readers. Yes. 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 So you talked a little bit about this, but what did what was your approach to the research of both the Greenbrier and Dorothy's story? You know, I always try to try to stay as true as I can to the real uh, the real life narrative because there's so many whys that are you know that you find 
even when you do stick to real life, you know, you think about any type of um, historical account, generally speaking, you have a lot of facts like, you know, she was born here and she got married at this on this date to this person. And she did, you know, she decorated this hotel and this hotel and this museum and this restaurant and, you know, on and on. But what sometimes history doesn't tell you is the why. So, you know, I think that with, with anything with the Greenbrier's history and with Dorothy's history, I got, I always play with those, you know, because, because sometimes we don't know, especially what I realized with, with Dorothy and what I think is pretty universal too, is we don't know a lot about, you know, you have someone's birthday and you have kind of like who they end up marrying and then their children usually, but you don't necessarily know, you know, who did they, who did they date before or who were they connected to before or right. how did they meet, you know, their, how do they make their most formative friendships or, and things like that. And so those are the things that I always play with in fiction because generally we don't know. So with Dorothy's life, there's some great biographies out there. Carlton Varney, actually, he's coming out with a new um, deluxe edition of her biography the same day as the grand design, which is so serendipitous and so cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it That's is. It's so weird. We were chatting and Mr. Varney was like, you know, telling me that it was coming out the same day. And I just thought that was the weirdest and also such the coolest, you know, the thing. It could be a great book club, club companion, I think, to this book, to my book. But he's also released several other design books um, about her. And so there's a, a lot of information about her life. He does a really great job explaining kind of like who she came from and her family history. She was actually, she was the, uh, the daughter of an iron heir and in a, in a whaling fortune. So her mother, the Minturns were, were the whale or whale, a whaling family. And then her dad on the Tupperman side, they were an iron family and they were both very old families of America. So around like Mayflower era, they're also very proud of that history. And they were of the, of the group that I guess if you watch Gilded Age, it'd be kind of like the old money group who did not like the flashiness, who, had elaborate things, but they kept them out of sight. So even where Dorothy grew up was Tuxedo Park, New York, which if any of you are familiar, it's basically like you took all those mansions on Fifth Avenue and you put them in a a little exclusive community that's tucked away and gated. And that's where she grew up. And, you know, it was just this life that she, she grew up around, you know, Astor's and she grew up with Emily Post. Emily Post was in that same community. And so, um, she grew up in this very, you know, very high-end princess of America type of lifestyle. And then, you know, you find out later on, okay, she's become the CEO of this company. And that is against everything they, they thought about, you know, that they wanted for their children. Because, you know, if you worked back then and you were an heiress, that meant that your family was on the brink of ruin because why else would you be doing it? Or, you know, or, or maybe your husband was on the brink of ruin and they just wanted you to marry well and, and have kids. And if you'd kind of defied those societal norms, then something was, must've been amiss. Right. But with her, she just always had this, she was very, a very creative person, someone who just had such immense natural talent and that just broke through really. But you know, you, for me with playing with her history, it was always about the why and kind of the, what was the catalyst that drove her to do that? Because it would have really put a spotlight on her in a way that, you know, she really did in some ways. She liked 
the glitz. She liked being known. And, but at the same time, that was not something that her family or her or society as a whole really wanted for someone in her, of her social class during the time. So I just, I played with why in, in this, in this book and kind of like in her formative years, what would have prompted her to make those choice, the choices she made later to kind of in a lot of ways, turn her back on um, how she was raised. And then in the, in the Greenbrier's history, you know, the Greenbrier, there's so many great records and I didn't, I didn't have to play with the history too much actually on the, on the Greenbrier side because it served as the perfect setting for what I was trying to do with, with, her, with Dorothy's character. But the book is set actually in 1908. It's, it was called the centennial season um, <laughs> at the Greenbrier. And it was neat because Taft was actually coming through to campaign for president during that season. And it had always been this kind of uh, place where, have things happened, you know, it was like this unofficial place where you could meet up with the senators and presidents and people got things done on, on the down low, you know, it was a place that people wanted to be seen. And so 1908, they're celebrating the centennial, which is funny because if you talk to the historian, he'll say the actual, the, the resort was actually established a while. Like it, it would have been like maybe a hundred and, and change years. It wasn't quite the centennial and, 1908, but they were celebrating it because there was a tavern or something that had been built on the property in 1808. And they just thought, okay, like this sounds good. Let's just do a centennial season in 1908. So they had a huge celebration. They had horse shows and, you know, all these society, everyone who was anyone in society was there basically. And, and then in the second half of the book in 1946, you basically have the opposite at the Greenbrier. You have this ravaged hotel that was made into an army hospital during world war two and all the fineries just ripped, ripped to shreds, you know, and she basically, st- and Dorothy herself didn't love the idea of war. And, you know, she lived through two world wars and a depression and a high profile divorce where her husband, who was the polio doctor for FDR just left her on the brink of right before the stock market crash. So she'd been through a lot. And so when she, comes back to the Greenbrier in the forties, she's met with a skeleton and kind of of the hotel she once knew and is kind of faced anew with the the trauma that she's been through. So yeah, it was kind of fun, you know, with, with the history, um, as far as Dorothy goes and the Greenbrier, it was kind of fun to just play and see how to like, how to give and take on sticking to historical fact and how, where I could play with fiction. You and I have, we talked about this a little bit, but I think it might be interesting to tell other people. And I don't know how much you even want to say about this, but I just wrote about Cornelia Vanderbilt. And there were some similarities between these two women in terms of how they both sort of left everything that they knew and turned their back a bit on this society that was supposed to be the end all be all. And we also talked a little bit about writing about women who maybe weren't universally loved and who might have some things in their stories that were going to be difficult for readers to digest and how, you know, you sort of straddle that line between we want to tell the real story. We want to tell the truth, but we also want to really examine, you know, why they did these things and sort of make them a little bit more sympathetic than maybe they were portrayed in the press or whatever. So I'm just wondering, you know, how you, how did you straddle that line? And was that something that you struggled with or was that something that was just really easy and obvious right out of the gate? I mean, I think like, you're exactly right. I think Edith and Dorothy were like cut from the same cloth, you know, 
so much. They had similar backgrounds. You know, I often wonder if they knew each other. They probably did. At least their their parents must have, you know. And um, it's, you know, you think about even nowadays, women feel compelled to prove themselves because the roles we play now are different than the roles we played 50 years ago. And so we feel compelled that we have to prove ourselves. And I think how much more difficult that would have been back, you know, in the 40s, the 30s and 40s when, when Dorothy was coming up or in the Gilded Age when Edith was doing what she was doing and how much more you would have had to fight to prove yourself. And Dorothy, you know, she was very much unapologetically with her designs, especially, and with her company, especially if I say it's right, it's right. You know, this is what I say goes. And I kind of, you know, you look at that at first and you're thinking, well, that's abrasive or, you know, that's, that's not, you're not giving, but you know what, this is her, this is her, this is what she's worked so hard for. This is, this is her company. And it's something that she ultimately was her life's joy. You know, this is something that she, she felt very strongly about. And I think that sometimes with, with women like this, they just, we have to think of them as, as pioneers for people, for us now. And I look at her life and I think about how difficult it must have been for her because she was criticized at every turn, you know, for the way, if, you know, the way she would speak or, um, you know, I found her divorce, um, you know, in Reno, they used to have to go to Reno in the thirties to get divorced. That was kind of like the society woman's, the place where she went to get a divorce. And, you know, there's pictures of Dorothy in the papers getting her divorce from her husband who left her. And you think about it and, you know, he's not being raked over the coals for leaving his wife. And she really had nothing to do. I mean, you know, marriages are tricky, but she didn't leave him. And yet she's the one um, in the papers being, you know, her divorce is being splashed all over and his face is nowhere to be seen. It's hers. And I think you have to have a thick skin to endure what she did and to, to triumph like she did and to build a legacy that she did too. And, you know, you look, you look at her strategy yeah. and how she overcame and really the color she used Dorothy Draper was, you see her designs and you immediately know that's, that's who did it. It's, un, it's just completely unlike anything else. It is striking and joyful and, I, I often think that her designs were a form of therapy for herself because she really couldn't, you know, just like I associate with her so much, like doing research with her about her made me realize how much I think we have in common. You know, she endured a lot. Um, like I mentioned, both world wars, the divorce and the great depression. And she got to the point where she didn't want, she could not see it. So she actually had her assistant cut the newspapers out. So all the bad news, she would have her assistant cut out and the good news she would read. And some might say, well, you know, don't you need to be mindful of what's going on in the world? Don't you need to be mindful of all of it? And the truth is yes, just to a degree. But I think what she was doing was saying, this is impacting me at a soul level. Like I need to, I need to focus on the good. And in, in focusing on the good, then maybe I can bring some light to others. And so she really believed in the power of positive thought. And um, especially after after her divorce, she really, um, she's always, she'd always liked color. But after her divorce, it was almost like she went to see a psychiatrist. And his philosophy was, 
you know, positive thinking is, is how we overcome over how we overcome, you know, some of our traumas and things like that. Obviously there's a lot more to it, but she fully adopted that and, and wanted to create spaces that were joyful and happy and could create positive memories for people in the midst of personal hardship. So no matter what they were going through, it just gave them a moment of joy. That was kind of her goal. And so I think that even though like personally, you know, we see in the, in, you know, in history that, oh, she was, she's kind of a no nonsense person who kind of turned her back on society and went a different direction. And maybe because she had to stand for, stand up for herself so much, maybe some would consider her abrasive or um, some might even say unlikable, but really in truth, she had to be that way. And I think that's completely true with Edith as well and what she went through. That's so interesting. And I, you know, and I did think I did spend a lot of time thinking about something that you're really touching on is that, you know, when we're going back and looking at primary sources and we're reading about these people, you have to consider who's writing about them, you know, and how, if they make these choices that are, you know, bolder or braver that women are not supposed to make, like who's writing about them and how are they writing about them and why? And, you know, what does that have the potential to do to the fabric of this very buttoned up society that's been created? So yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you that she probably, you know, she probably was portrayed in a way that maybe wasn't completely accurate and because she was doing something that was, you know, unusual for her time. That is so true. And I love the historical fiction books because they they get to let the reader know the real person behind it and not just what, what might have been said in the press or might not have. And especially if you think back, even back in mythological times, some of those characters were maligned because they were female, but now they get to have their their lives really told. So in addition to Dorothy, the Greenbrier is such a centerpiece of the book. What do you think it is about it that captures people's attention and imagination? You know, on the, just like on the fly, I think you think of the Greenbrier and you think of glamour, right? People, people are attracted, to, whether they like it or not, they're attracted to the glitter and they're attracted to that lifestyle that for so long has been a part of the Greenbrier, you know, president's vacation there. And you had, you know, in the forties, like the grand opening party that when Dorothy redecorated the hotel, one of the cool things about Dorothy was she was actually one of the celebrities. She wasn't just the decorator. She was a celebrity and she was kind of the Martha Stewart of her time. I mean, she had a good housekeeping column and again, she was an heiress. So that kind of played into the glamour too, but you know, they had people like Bing Crosby and the Kennedys and um, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and they all vacationed there. And the Greenbrier has forever been a place that, just you walk in and it's an enormous place. It's huge. And it's decorated in these like wild, vibrant um, decorations. And it's unmistakable. It is completely unlike any other place I've ever been to. And then you walk outside and the outside kind of matches the glory of the inside because it's gorgeous. It's in the mountains and there's just, you just feel like you can finally, I just feel like you, it makes you smile. It, you feel like you can finally take a breath. It's just, the it's a great place. I don't know how to explain it, but it's just, there's an allure and a draw to it for sure. And it keeps people coming back year after year after year, which is why it's such a storied place. There's a lot of stories to tell, but it's also just a place that's, that's 
so important to so many people because of the memories made there. Wow. It's the kind of place, too, you want to take a little time travel back and land right in the middle of one of those big parties and kind of see what it was really like. I know. They used to have um, such great parties there. They had, uh, you know, they used to, it used to be you walk, went in and you always had dinner in the, the dining room there, the formal dining room. And then you went and danced in their cameo ballroom that has this humongous crystal chandelier that Dorothy designed. And they had a big band back in the forties and that's kind of what the weekend was about. People, you know, came and it was a very fancy, very glittery weekend. And, um, I talked to the, I told the historian, I was like, Hey, can we somehow, can we get like a throwback weekend? Like, can you guys, can you guys do one of those? <laughs> and he, it would be, it would be awesome. <laughs> I know he always said they're they're always trying to balance like, okay, this isn't just an ancient place. Like this is also like new. So you have to balance like the new and the old. And I was like, I know, but just for the weekend, like it doesn't have to be old. Like we don't have to gather around the spring house and drink sulfur water, but we could, you know, have the fancy dances and the fancy dinners. And that'd be so much fun. But it is definitely like a throwback. I mean, when you go in there, you feel like you've gone back in time, even though it's updated, even though it's new, it's not, but there's just something about it that like, it just feels like all the best parts of this kind of like time gone by. I don't know. It's a really special place. For yeah. Me. They have, they have, you know, high tea still for everyone, for all the guests, um, every, you know, every day and it's lovely. And, you know, we go in the winter a lot and, you know, it's cold up there in the winter and, people will say, well, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, there's so much to do there. You can just hang out at the hotel. There's just tons to do. There's restaurants and the bowling alley and the swimming pool and the movie theater. I mean, the list could go on, but it's such a fun place. Yeah. Okay. So you might not have an answer for this. And if you don't, that's totally fine. Cause we have lots more <laughs> questions for you, but um, I know that sometimes when we're doing research for these books, there are things that we come across that we're like, Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I love that so much. And we'll go down these, you know, rabbit holes and spend all this time researching something. And then it doesn't make it into the book. <laughs> Is there anything that, you know, when you were working on this book, any research that you did that didn't make it into the novel or anything that, you know, you wished you could have included, but you didn't, or did you use everything? No, I mean, you know how it is with books. Like you're just doing, it's a snapshot and it has yeah. to be because otherwise people would get bored. I wouldn't, because I, I would enjoy <laughs> reading, reading about the research, but most people would be like, okay, <laughs> we get it. She did a lot of stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, but really, you know, there was a, there are so many projects she did that, especially on door on the Dorothy side of things, she did this enormous project in Brazil and it was supposed to be kind of like her masterpiece, kind of like the Greenbrier ended up being. And it was just bad timing. It was a huge new resort. It was a gambling resort in Brazil and world war two, you know, Brazil ends up entering world war two and they outlaw gambling and then that's it. And she gets kind of halfway done with it and she doesn't get to open it. And it's this, really devastating thing for her and her career. And weirdly enough, there are still pieces of her designs that hotel ended up opening later and the designs that she did are still there, which is really, it's a really neat thing. Um, but there's so many things she did that are just, that I would have loved to talk about and explore more. But then on the Greenbrier side, I mean, there are so, there's so much history you know, you have the bunker, the congressional bunker that they found in the seventies yeah. that was hidden basically. And, you know, Again, like there were so many options of stories to write at the Greenbrier. Um, you know, there's there's stuff from 
you know, the early 1800s on. And yes, I think it's so compelling. But the good thing is, is that there are books about it. And there are books that I can read for my own enjoyment and, and hear that history and read about more about that history. And the same is true. Of, that's why actually for the first time in the back of this book, I give additional reading recommendations because Dr. Bob Conti, who is the historian there, has written a really great comprehensive history of the Greenbrier. And then Carlton Varney has written so many really great books about Dorothy um, as well. And another thing, I guess, I, one of the things I was glad I got to include is, so, you know, Dorothy, she ended up passing away in the 60s. And she kind of turned the, she gave, kind of handed the reins off to Carlton Varney who has been at the helm of Dorothy Draper and company now for years and years. And he is, he's actually been decorating the Greenbrier longer than she has at this point. And so he is just, you know, there's, it is Dorothy Draper and the Greenbrier combined, but it also is Carlton. He is just magnificent and he is just amazing and has, is really just as, as instrumental as both of them are. And so I wanted to figure out how to include him in the book because I just felt like he had to be there somehow. And so I'm really glad that I, we have a, there's a, he's, he maybe makes an appearance in the, in the, um, the epilogue. So I was glad that he got to kind of just, I got to add all of the main players, I guess, that I felt like were imperative to the Greenbrier's history together in the book. So great. Yep. Gather them all together. So other than learning about the Greenbrier and getting to know Dorothy's story, what are the other things that you hope the readers will take away from the book? What are the themes and the feelings that you hope people take? Well, I am an optimist, honestly. That's That's just who I am. I don't like to write books that leave people feeling upset or sad. I always want people to to come away feeling encouraged or feeling happy. Um, And I hope that people are inspired by Dorothy's story and that they realize that, you know, she overcame a lot. You can overcome a lot that any, that to use your gifts, you know, even if it seems impossible, even if it seems difficult, even if you don't quite know how you can use your gifts, just keep digging in and keep and keep fostering those things. You have them for a reason. And also just that, you know, that color changes things. And I know that seems so like silly to say, just so simply. I love that. It's true. And being around, you know, in the, during the pandemic, I actually painted two of my rooms in my house. Dorothy colors is what I would call it. So one is like a, It's a Tiffany blue, but she'd be really mad about me saying that because she said that Tiffany stole that color from her. So Dorothy blue. <laughs> Dorothy blue. I like that. So I painted a, the the room was is now Dorothy blue, and my dining room is like this very cheery yellow color. And it truly was like during the pandemic, it made me so happy. You know, she hated beige, and she called she called beige gravy colors, and she said. I don't want to, I don't want to see anything when Mr. Varney talks about this a lot, but but she says she would go around and she would say, show me nothing that looks like gravy, you know? And so she wouldn't want to see any gravy colors. Um, And so I tried to, during the pandemic, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to see how this color, color thing affects my mood. And it really did. It like brightened you up to see like a happy, cheery sight. So 
yeah, I hope people, I hope people are more encouraged to splash that color on the walls if they want. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, Joy, we have had so much fun with you here today and we are so excited to get to talk with you and we cannot wait for everyone to read the Grand Hotel. They're absolutely going to love it. And I am positive that not only is it going to inspire a lot more reading about Dorothy Draper, but that there are going to be a lot of people visiting the Greenbrier after they read this book. I hope so. Totally agree. And I also read somewhere that it's a perfect companion piece to the HBO show, The Gilded Age. So Mm. put those two together. Yes, that is... And thank you all for joining the Writer's Block podcast today. On behalf of Mary Kay, Patty, Christy, and Kristen, thank you so much for joining us each and every week. And we'll see you again next Friday. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletter. Remember to use the code Coffee with Friends for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.